0: Hey, Crossings podcast community, this teaching is called Come and Join Me for Breakfast and is the 23rd and final teaching in our John study. It was taught by Mark Nelson on April 11th, 2021. Thanks for listening. Hey, Crossings community, thanks for joining us here on YouTube. We're grateful you would. Today, we are going to end the journey that we began together, I think, last September is when we started, a study of the Gospel of John, uh, which is, by the way, my favorite book. And you may say, well, why is it your favorite? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons, honestly. Um, there's so much that's unique to John that's not in the other Gospels. There, uh, there's so much emotion in these stories Um Sometimes I say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more about the things Jesus did. And sometimes in John, with the emotion and the relationship, it's more about what Jesus meant, Um, just the relationship that Jesus had with the one that Jesus loved, who we think is the author, John, all of that. There's a lot more reasons, but I love this book. And in the big picture of things, I guess, when you think about the gospels as a whole, and we've taught this for years, I firmly believe I'm in the opinion that we should always be working through a gospel. There's this quote that we uh, have used before from Don Everts when he talks about it. We're going to put it on the screen for you. He said, We should allow ourselves to so study the life of Jesus that we become captivated and entrenched in the subtle details and intense themes we find there. We should hold church services that relentlessly pull our eyes back to Him, the center of our faith. We should speak to each other about how his life and manner have been affecting us lately. We should keep a growing list by our bedside of how Jesus impressed us during the day. We should be so convinced of his holiness, his strangeness, that we never make the mistake of assuming things about him or growing bored with the stories of his life. We should always be working through a gospel from front to back, allowing ourselves to walk through every part of his life, to consider every teaching of his life, rather than always focusing on what we already like or remember about Him. You know, we've, we've been doing this faith community thing now for over 14 years. And if I could, uh, and people have used a lot of things to describe our community, uh, mostly good. Uh, but if I could pick just one thing that would be used as a description uh, of our faith community at Crossings, it would be by far something like, You know what? These people take Jesus more seriously than any place I know. I would love that. Or or something like, you will never find a community that tries any harder to be like Jesus than this community. How beautiful would that be? The centrality of Jesus just permeates everything we do. Well, we've been centered on Jesus in this study now for a few months. Let me give you a quick overview. I'm going to put it on the screen, just these bullet points. A quick overview of the journey we've taken since September. We've looked at Jesus' public life, basically a three-year period of time. And in that, you'll see here, uh, we had that beautifully poetic, powerful beginning. The Word becomes flesh. you got John the baptizer and the calling of those who will follow closest. You have this wedding at Cana where the wine, water is turned to wine. You have the, the temple fit where Jesus kind of flips out and fights for those who couldn't fight for themselves. You have encounters with Nicodemus. You have encounters, an encounter with a woman at the well, a lame man, a blind man, a woman caught in adultery. You have confrontations with religious leaders. He talks about his authority, the equality he shared with with the Father. Uh, He feeds 5,000, walks on the water, and offends hundreds all in the same day in John chapter 6. You have Jesus at festivals, uh, the Feast of Booths, Booths, Passover, etc., you have all these I am statements in the book of John. I am, Jesus said, the light of the world, bread of life, the door, the good shepherd, etc., etc. Resurrection and life, as he called Lazarus from the grave, he said, I am the resurrection and life. Over one third of the book of John is the last week of Jesus' life, his entry into Jerusalem, the anointing by Mary, that unbelievable night in the room where it happened, where we have spent so much time over the last few weeks the arrest, the trials, the the torture, the death, the burial, and of course the resurrection. For He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the journey we have taken. Let me ask you this. As we consider where we've journeyed together, um, which story embodies how you think of Jesus the most? We're going to put these questions on the screen. Which story embodies how you think of Jesus the most? And what story in John has caused you to rethink Jesus' view, uh, to rethink Jesus and view him differently? So I would, love for you, I would love to be able to discuss that with you. can't do that on YouTube, but you can pause, discuss it with people around you, or if you're by yourself, just write these out. Which story embodies how you think of Jesus the most? When you think of all those stories in any in the book of John, which do you go, oh yeah, that, that's how I think of Jesus? And which story has caused you to rethink Jesus and to view him differently? Okay, pause the video, spend some time doing that. Okay, so I hope that was good discussion or or good time of reflection for you. Because if we have taught this book and we haven't learned anything or if we haven't learned to think about Jesus in a fresh or a different way, then I will. I fear we will have failed. I hope we have given a new frame to the story of Jesus. I hope we have understood him differently and fresh. Okay, so before we finish the book, and uh, we have John chapter 21. And before we go forward into John chapter 21, I wanna go backwards. And I want to remind you about two specific things about one specific character. The character is Peter, and there are two specific events that apply directly to the story we find in John 21. First is this, it happened in Luke chapter five, and it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is where Jesus meets Peter by telling him how to fish. They fished all night, they didn't catch anything. Uh, It works, Jesus's advice works, and they catch so many fish. And it's at that moment, that Peter says, he falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, I will follow you. That's in Luke chapter 5. Then in Luke chapter 22, which I want to put on the screen for you, he said, it says, he watched, and means Peter, he watched from the shadows as those who had seized Jesus made a fire in the center of the courtyard, like a little charcoal campfire, and sat down around it. Then Peter slipped in quietly and sat with them. Luke 22 goes on to describe how Peter denied Jesus three times while sitting around that fire. And then after the third time, verse 61, still on the screen, the Lord turned toward Peter. So Jesus is being led towards the crucifixion. He's been arrested. He's already been beaten some. And as he crosses by in this courtyard, he sees Peter. And it says, the Lord turned toward Peter and their eyes met. Peter remembered Jesus' words about his triple denial before the rooster would crow. So Peter left the courtyard and wept bitter tears. Remember those two scenes from Peter's life. On the shore, when he falls at his feet and follows him, and Luke 22, where he denies him three times. Now to John chapter 21. Let's finish this study of John. Now remember, uh, it's post-resurrection. Actually, the the book of John gives us four scenes. This is one of the four scenes total that that describes Jesus after the resurrection. There was one other time when Jesus appeared to the disciples, verse 1. This time by the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's the same thing. We're not sure when this was after the resurrection of Jesus, okay? But it was the same exact place that Jesus met Peter for the first time. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So seven people total. Okay, the ones that are named plus the sons of Zebedee are James and John. And then the two others, they say, are probably Andrew and Peter. So seven people total are there. And Peter says to them, I'm going to go fishing. So we have another fish story here. The disciples said, well, okay, we'll come with you. I don't think they knew anything right now other than to go back to their old livelihood. Jesus had resurrected, things were gonna be different. They go back to the life that they knew before this life-changing event. I don't—I honestly don't believe they knew how to move forward or move on with life. Well, verse three says, they went out in the boat and they caught nothing through the night. Okay, does that sound familiar? Sea of Galilee, all night fishing ex- ex- expedition, and they catch nothing. Remember, this is the same beach where Jesus Verse broke through to Peter in Luke 5. Now, here we are in that same place, the same scenario, about three years later. Verse 4. As day was breaking, Jesus was standing on the beach, but they did not know it was Jesus. (laughs) Maybe he's too far away. I don't know. He's got a disguise on. I don't know. But but they don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus says, My sons, you haven't caught any fish, have you? (laughs) The disciples respond, no. In verse 6, Jesus says, Tell you what, throw your net on the starboard side of the boat and your net will find the fish. Oh, great. That's all we need is some jerk telling us how to fish. Like another says, wait a minute, this is deja vu. Haven't we lived this before? Because they had lived this before. That's what's so amazing about this scene. Well, verse six, they did what he said. And suddenly they could not lift their net because of the massive weight of the fish that filled it. The disciple loved by Jesus, we know to be John, turned to Peter and said, it's the Lord. <laughs> Only Jesus could do this. Immediately, when Peter realized it was the master, he threw on some clothes, for he was stripped for work and dove into the sea. Okay, now I'm not a fisherman <laughs> at all, but I—I I, uh, someone's going to have to explain to me fishing naked. I don't completely understand it, or half naked, or whatever it was. Surely, There are hooks and things. So those are safety hazards. You know what I'm saying? So, but evidently Peter was partially or he he was undressed in some way, but he jumps into the water. He puts his clothes on and jumps in the water. That makes no sense. But Peter does it. Verse eight says, the rest of the disciples followed him, bringing in the boat and dragging in their net full of fish. They were close to the shore, fishing only about a hundred yards out. So what an amazing picture. So they, they pull all those fish onto the boat. Peter's jumped out, and he's swimming. So the boat is slowly moving these last 100 yards, and right next to the boat is Peter just swimming along. It's almost like they're racing to the shore. It says, when they arrive, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire laid with fish on the grill. Jesus had bread, too. Jesus had already caught his fish. And by the way, I think it's so significant that their charcoal fire is in this text remember the Luke passage? So Jesus says to the disciples, verse 10, bring some of the fish you just caught. Simon Peter went back to the boat to unload the fish from the net. He pulled 153 large fish from the net. Despite the number of fish, the net held without a tear, which evidently I'm told is a miracle within itself. So 153 fish. Okay, a little side note here. People always debate and Seriously, you can read commentaries, you can take these books off the shelf, and and everybody has a different reason for what, and and meaning for the 153 fish. Here on the screen, you see some of the greatest scholars, I don't know if they're greatest scholars, but some some scholars who had their opinion. Cyril of Alexandria said that hundred is the fullest number. hundred stands for the fullness of the Gentiles who will be gathered into Christ. The number 50 stands for the remnant of Israel who will be gathered in. The number three stands for the Trinity to whose glory all things are done. All right, baby. Augustine, he says that 10 is the number of the law for there are 10 commandments. Seven is the number of grace for the gifts of the spirit are sevenfold. Now, seven plus 10 makes 17 and 153 is the sum of all the figures. One plus two plus three plus four all the way to 17. Thus, he says, 153 stands for all those who, either by law or by grace, have been moved to come to Jesus Christ. That seems like a stretch, but sure, yeah. Uh, Jerome, a historian, says, In the sea there are 153 different kinds of fishes, and that the catch that happened that day is one which includes every kind, and therefore the number symbolizes the fact that someday all men of all nations would be gathered together in Jesus Christ. Again, maybe, or here's my theory, It could be that maybe they pulled the fish out, and they counted them, and there were 153 there. And John said, oh, I'll write that down. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's all the meaning is. The the fact of the matter is we don't know the significance of it. Uh, We can ask someday, I guess. But we do know that in verse 12, after all this has happened, Jesus says these words to his closest friends. Now here is the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, King of Kings, from His glory upon high. He speaks these extraordinary words, verse 12 on the screen, come and join me for breakfast. I think that's why chapter 21 is one of my favorites in the whole book, is because Jesus fixes them breakfast. The one who had multiplied the loaves and the fish, who had watched over them as a shepherd, who had washed their feet, this same Jesus opens up an eye hop for them on the seashore. And he fixes them breakfast. The book of John is a very intimate book, I think, emotional book. And I, in this scene, imagine what an amazing morning that must have been with this resurrected Jesus. I like to imagine the scene around the campfire. And imagine the conversation that they had around the fire. Like you do when you get together with people and and you spend a lot of time with them and you talk and you, you tell stories and you reminisce. I would think that's what they did. So imagine those first followers eating breakfast and laughing with a resurrected Jesus. Remember that time? Remember that time, Jesus, when all that water turned to wine? You know, Jesus, I happen to have some water over here, and it is five o'clock somewhere. What do you say? You know? Or uh, remember that time when you got really ticked off at the people because they made your, your your house, the temple, a uh, marketplace. You remember that? Jesus, why did you why did you you spit to make mud to heal that guy's eyes? Like, couldn't there have been a more sanitary way to do that? They probably made jokes about the religious leaders, making fun of their hats or something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe around the fire they turned a little pensive and they said, So Jesus, were we supposed to understand that you were going to rise from the dead? Because we didn't get it. We get it now, but we didn't get it then. I think at least partially what Jesus does by sitting around, eating breakfast, sharing these stories, I think, I think Jesus is showing these friends that the resurrection to come isn't just about life after death. I think he's showing them that in reality that through Jesus, believers can have abundant life, a full and meaningful life, 153 fish worth life here and now through faith. Well, for me, as I think about this fire and I think about this breakfast, a huge question comes, what in the world was Peter thinking? We don't have an account Of any other encounter between them, between John, uh, between Jesus and Peter, after the resurrection, nothing since that look in the garden. I mean, around the campfire when he's being led to to the crucifixion, and when the rooster crows, we have nothing, and now we have this campfire, this charcoal fire. So what was going through Peter's mind? It could have been we don't know. Could have been the first real discussion. That that Peter had had with Jesus. Here's what I think happened around this charcoal fire with Jesus. I think Jesus wanted to give Peter a different lasting memory, which would explain what happened next in John chapter 21. I think Peter's probably still drying off. He's wet, and Jesus catches Peter's eye. You know how you like look at someone and like you kind of like you nod, and that means hey let let's go chat, let's go take a walk. I think Jesus kind of gave Peter that, hey, let's, let's go take a walk. And as they were walking, Peter, Peter didn't know it was going to happen, right? Again, if this is their first conversation. And his last memory was so bad when he was just him and Jesus. But John 21 says they took a walk, and Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep, Jesus says. A third time, do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Now, there's a lot of discussion we could have around all that. But the the point that I pull out of it is I heard someone once ask, do you think that Peter flashed back to each separate denial of Jesus between each of these questions of whether he loved him or not? I think it's possible. Just imagine the range of emotions Peter had been feeling since that first charcoal fire when he denied him. He denied knowing him. I bet Peter, this is just a gasp, I assume he thought he was no better than Judas who had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. I believe Jesus in this conversation, though, brought healing and wholeness to Peter by eating breakfast with him and giving him a different lasting memory. And he does it by taking him back to where it all began, where they first met on this seashore, where his life had found new meaning just three years earlier. He takes it all back there. And it makes me wonder how many of us uh, have similar points in our lives, uh, where we come to a point where we're overwhelmed and where we're overcome by the emotion of, of guilt over something we've done in the past, or we're overcome and overwhelmed by, by the horrible memories of, of something that has happened to us, or, or the bitterness over some of these things that have happened or been done or that we've done, or, or we're paralyzed by the thoughts just swirling around in our heads Because we think, oh, this is who I am because I've done this or because this has happened. And ultimately, we just want to move past it. We want to find a way forward. We want to have a different memory. We want to embrace a new future. We just want to find a way forward. What I would hope that each of us would see is the real hope in this story and experience the same things that the others experienced that day. This intimacy, this different lasting memory. And my prayer would be this for us. May we be a community that finds healing and wholeness in Jesus. May we help any and all that are broken to understand how Jesus really feels about them. And in doing so, may we give them a different lasting memory. And as a community, may we be people that invite any and everyone to breakfast around the second charcoal fire and not spend any more time at that first. So that we more and more and more and more look like this Jesus, that when people say, oh yeah, yeah, man, they take that Jesus so seriously. May we be people who do those things. May we be people that create a community like that. Let's pray. Father, uh, I am always overwhelmed with the story of this Gospel of John. And I'm always moved by the relationships he has and how he loves the woman at the well, Nicodemus in the dark of the night, the adulterous woman, uh, the religious leaders, honestly, uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and his closest friends, and Peter in this situation. I am blown away by the love and compassion that he has for them. May we understand he has that for us and may it change us, and may we see Him differently. And it's in the name of Jesus that I would pray this, amen. We said the very first week that we began the study of John that there is one big idea, there is one point to the book of John. It is one overwhelming point. And I think everything John wrote was designed, I really believe everything he wrote was designed to get us to this point. And here's the point, chapter 20, which is coming up on the screen. Chapter 20, this is right after the account of Jesus appearing to his followers after the resurrection. Verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other wondrous signs that are not written in this book. Okay, first of all, that verse is infuriating, right? I'm like, just write them down. We would want more, I want more. What else did John have to do on that island in exile? Anyway, he could just write down the things he remembered. He didn't, okay, that's beside the point. Here is the central point in the book of John in verse 31. These accounts are recorded so that you too might believe that Jesus is the anointed, the liberating king, the son of God, because believing grants you the life he came to share. This common meal we share each week is a meal of belief. It is a practice that leads us to this point of the gospel of John. So we invite you to take it. We invite you to take it in belief that Jesus is the anointed, the liberating King, the Son of God, and that believing grants you the life he came to share. We're gonna sing a song together. And as we sing this song, we pray that as you sing it, you sing it in belief. As you take this body, this blood, this bread, this cup, you take it in belief of this Jesus, gives us all a different lasting memory and draws us in close and offers us a meal around the second charcoal fire when you're ready you take